Acts chapter 19. We're skipping a whole bunch of Acts to uh, move to some incidents that come later in the book. And tonight I want us to look at a portion of this chapter that speaks about a riot that took place in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, during the time near the end of Paul's ministry there on his third missionary journey. Paul had an extended ministry at Ephesus, as many of you know. He was there for two and a half years or so, longer than any other place. And it was a powerful time of ministry of the gospel. The gospel spread not only throughout the city of Ephesus, but by missionaries that were sent there up the Lycus Valley. The gospel also came to other cities that we know of from other places in the New Testament, uh, Laodicea and Colossae and other places in the region. But the story that we want to look at tonight is one of the more vivid of Luke's accounts in a very vivid book that speaks about a powerful head-on collision between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the pagan culture in the Roman world of that day. And so that song that Dinka just sang for us about the Lord being our light and our salvation, Whom Shall I Fear? Of Whom Shall I Be Afraid? sets the tone for this kind of a story of the confrontation between the gospel of the king, Jesus Christ, and those pagans in the Roman world to whom it was ministered in that first century. This morning we were taking a pretty hard look at ourselves, warts and all, and trying to evaluate our life as Christians within the church, and um, that's a challenging time, it's a wearying time, it may be difficult for congregations to listen to those kinds of sermons, I can assure you it's difficult to give those kinds of sermons, but it's good that the Lord would have us look at ourselves. But he also wants us to look at the world around us and to understand what's going on. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that in our day we are engaged in a full-scale war with a pagan culture that has become the order of the day in the United States of America. Two worlds coming into collision. Two lords claiming ultimate sovereignty. Man claiming to be God himself as he did in Genesis 3 and ever since, individually or collectively, and the Lord Jesus Christ announcing his sovereign kingship over every name, every authority, every power in this world and in the world to come. And that means that Christians are engaged in the holy warfare, a struggle against sin, a struggle to cast down every high thing that is exalted against the name of Christ whether it be intellectually or ethically or institutionally or in any other way. We're engaged in a war, a conflict, a head-on collision. I mentioned to the Bayview congregation in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, I'd read this choice quote, maybe others of you have heard it from a long time. I mean, Vince Lombardi's been dead for a lot of years, but it just uh, came to my attention that Lombardi denied the allegation that football was a contact sport. He said football is not a contact sport. Football is a collision sport. Dancing is a contact sport. Well, we're not dancing with the world, or ought not to be. We're engaged in a collision sport with them as the gospel penetrates our own land and elsewhere in the world. And I think looking at this story, at least it struck me as I was working through the book of Acts last year in a junior high Bible class, at Covenant Christian School, that this was such an insightful and helpful and challenging story, and it became very timely, even though it happened 2,000 years ago, as we think about our clashes with the culture 
in the world around us over many different kinds of issues today. So I hope you'll be encouraged by this word from God as we see again the triumph of the gospel and by Luke's account of the detailed way in which our sovereign Lord brought that triumph to pass in a particular situation in the city of Ephesus. And so we'll be looking at the chapter tonight, and I thought about reading the whole chapter through, but I think I'll just rely on reading it in sections as I comment upon it, and I hope that won't be a disadvantage to you. I intend to start particularly at verse 23, where this riot is described, but in order to understand that, we do have to look for a moment at the background, which comes earlier in the chapter, where Luke describes for us the successfulness of Paul's preaching in Ephesus and in the surrounding areas. So if you go back to the early part of the chapter, particularly in verse 8 and following, we read about Paul's powerful preaching and teaching ministry, his proclamation of the gospel, and then the reasoning, the arguing, the debating that entered into his discussions of Christ, first in the synagogue, and then a little bit later on in the school of Tyrannus. Luke writes in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. You know, those sermons that Paul preached were a lot different than the sermons that pastors preach today. He regularly got arguments at the end of his sermons, or maybe in the middle of his sermons. And so the line between preaching and arguing was crossed regularly. You'd preach for a while, you'd argue for a while, and then once you silence that objection, you'd preach a little more, get somebody else all worked up, they'd start challenging what was said, and you'd argue a little bit more. People who don't like arguments have a hard time in the church when those kinds of things go on. Maybe that's why we've made our church services much safer. You know, We just don't allow people to stand up and contradict the pastor right in the middle of his sermon or to object at the end of the sermon. Uh, if they do, everybody in the congregation, you know, the pastor may take it fine, but the congregation kind of goes, oh, no, you know. It does happen on a rare occasion, and that's fine. But when Paul preached, it happened all the time because he had new, wonderful, demanding things to say about the life of faith. Well, things got so hot in the synagogue that he had to move down the street to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, where he continued for two years preaching and teaching in the heat of the afternoon when most of the Greeks would be taking naps. They'd go to school early in the morning and in late in the afternoon and in the middle of the day the school auditorium was open, so Paul would get in there in the afternoon when anybody in their right mind would be taking a nap. And all these crazy Ephesians kept coming day after day after day, year after year, for two years to hear the gospel. And the results were powerful in the transformation of the lives of people. Paul saw a great opportunity there as he records, as he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. He says, there's a wide open door here in Ephesus and many adversaries at the same time. Opportunity and struggle opportunity and conflict. And that's the way it went for Paul during that whole time of ministry there. Not only was the preaching and the apologetic work effective, but God also accompanied Paul's ministry with powerful signs and wonders attesting to the authority of the gospel. And that leads to a really amusing story that, Paul, uh, that Luke records for us about Paul's working of miracles there in verse 11. And then when word got around to some Jewish exorcists about the power of the name of Jesus, they decided they'd have, they'd have that the demons themselves. You know, these uh, Ephesian uh, Jews were uh, uh, into magic like the Gentiles were, and, and they liked to find some new magical phrase or 
uh, notion. The Jews were held in high regard for that reason because, uh, you know, the Jews were always uh, hesitant to use the name of Jehovah out of reverence for the name. Well, these pagans thought, well, that main name must have tremendous magic power. And if we could just find out how to pronounce that unpronounceable name, maybe we could have great power too. Well, it wasn't the name of Jehovah they latched on to, but they took the name of Jesus from Paul. And some of these sons of Siva went to a man, and uh, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached, they were going to cast out a demon. But they were surprised by the response because the demon said, well, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? And then they fell upon these men and beat them so badly that Luke says they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's not the Exorcist 1, 2, or 3. That's, uh, that's some new Exorcist movie that has yet to be made where the superstitious exorcist gets thrashed by the demon who knows Jesus and knows his apostle but doesn't know the magician making, uh, taking advantage of that glorious name and that glorious power. And from that, the triumph of the gospel spread over the workers of magic there the Gentiles who were deeply involved in magic spells and magic potions uh, in order to advance their religion. We're told in verse 17 that the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. F.F. Bruce suggests that the phrase that's translated there in the NIV, confess their evil deeds, may well mean that they came announcing their magical phrases. You know, the idea with a good spell is that it should be kept secret. And magicians believe often that a spell that is made public, that is disclosed, loses its power. And Bruce suggests that maybe these people, having come to Christ, came deliberately trying to disarm their superstition by saying, here's all the magic spells I know, and if I confess them, then they'll be void of power. They brought their spells, and then they brought their books, their scrolls, and those were burned without regard to the expense involved. You know, they didn't decide, well, these books are so valuable, why don't we set up a library? They burned them because they were filled with unbelief and superstition. And even though they were worth thousands of days' worth of wages, they did not hold back. And in this way, says Luke, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The name of Jesus was held in high honor in the midst of this pagan culture, and it spread in its power and its effectiveness. And it was that spreading power of the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ that created the trouble that led to the riot about which we want to look a little bit tonight. And the trouble began in the silversmiths' union. Now, I don't know whether you like unions or don't like unions. That's really not the point. But here... It was those silversmiths, their union, their guild, their group of artisans that began to be concerned about the results of Paul's ministry. We're told by Luke in verse 23 that a great disturbance arose in the city concerning the way, the name that was often used to describe believers, by believers. And a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith by trade, gives voice, gives expression to the concern that these pagans had over what was going on. And in a nutshell, Demetrius tells us what he was really upset about that caused him to call a special meeting of the silversmiths' union. The problem was that the gospel was bad for business, as Luke tells us in verse 25 and 26. 
He called them together, along with the workmen and related trades. They got a few guys from the other guilds, the other unions in. And he said, man, you know that we receive a good income from this business. The business of making silver idols to use in connection with the worship of Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. The gospel was so effective in its spread, so transforming of the life of these pagans who used to be magicians and superstitious and worshippers of Artemis that now is beginning to make an impact on the local economy, and that called for action. Remember what Paul said in the passage we looked at this morning, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And here the love of money manifests itself in this union meeting that calls attention to the evil of the gospel, as the pagans saw it, because the spread of Christianity was becoming bad for business. Now, what was the business of these Ephesian silversmiths? Well, they would make statues out of silver, and uh, archaeologists have found other statues of Artemis, not made of silver, but of some other material. But they made these little altars, these little idols of Artemis, that would be used in the homes and sometimes in the temples in connection with the worship of Artemis, who was the goddess of the e Ephesians. She was sort of their resident deity. Uh, sometimes she is identified as Diana. Now, if you've heard Frankie Avalon sing about Diana, you know, you've got the wrong idea. Diana, the Greek goddess, I mean, she was a real fine-looking lady who was noble and honorable and chaste and a pleasure to look at. But Artemis, Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians, was a fertility goddess, an earth goddess, really the mother goddess that was imagined to give life to all of the world and all of men, and she really wasn't much to look at. Diana might make a centerfold in Playboy magazine, but Artemis would never. And I don't want to offend anybody, but, you know, Artemis was this dumpy little goddess that had many, 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 many breasts all over her body because the idea was that she would nurse all of life and all of men. Well, an interesting concept, but doesn't make a very pretty statue. So this wasn't an aesthetic religion. This was an, a religion that looked to the earth itself to give life and sustenance to men. It was the epitome of the error of Genesis 3, where men exchanged the glory of the transcendent God for every kind of creature, or in this case, for the goddess who stands behind every kind of creature, suckling and giving life and nourishment to men and women and animals and beasts. And these silversmiths made statues used in that particular kind of worship. So that goddess had been there for a long time. As a matter of fact, the archaeologists believe that the first image of Artemis was a meteor that had come crashing into the area and was found and reminded somebody who picked it up of this goddess, this mother, this earth nurturer. And so he took it in, and they made a temple, which was a magnificent temple, which was burned about 350 years before Christ and was replaced by a temple that was so much more glorious that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
These Ephesians were serious about their devotion to Artemis. And these silversmiths were serious about the business of devotion to Artemis. And as one Artemis worshiper after another heard the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ and was regenerated by the Holy Spirit and drawn to a saving relationship with Christ, he didn't have any need anymore of silver idols of Artemis, and it was beginning to make an impact on the local economy. But that impact was a profound one. It was an indirect one. And this is something that's really worth noting and underlining as we think about our confrontation with the culture. There are certainly some issues that we must confront our culture about that need explicit and immediate attention. But it's striking that in this particular case, and I think in many of the cases that we engage in conflict with our culture, the impact upon the surface of our culture is going to be very slow because the gospel works on a very profound level. And to use another example, which is more common, many New Testament commentators have pointed out, that the preaching of the gospel ultimately meant the end of slavery in the old Roman world, and, the, and yet no New Testament writer denounces slavery explicitly. But the principles of the gospel are such, and the principles of the common life of the people of God are such, that sooner or later men get the idea slavery just won't work in this setting anymore, and they abandon the institution. Well, so it was with Paul's preaching. Paul did not denounce Artemis particularly. At least there's no record of that. He didn't denounce the silversmiths for making their living off of the Artemis cult. What did he preach? Well, Demetrius tells us in verse 26, Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in the whole region of Asia because he says that man-made gods are not gods at all. That was the message of the gospel as it confronted that paganism. What a man can make as a god with his own hand is not a god at all, but a figment of his imagination that cannot help him, cannot save him, cannot give him happiness in this life, nor eternal life in the world to come. That's what Paul preached. And the outcome was a drying up of the business for the silversmiths. Paul's message, we can imagine, would have been much like Isaiah's was, as repeatedly he denounces the foolishness, as well as the sinfulness, of worshiping idols. And that really comes to its highlight in the 44th chapter of Isaiah, where there is an extended extended attack against the foolishness of idolatry. And we haven't time to look at it all. You've probably read it before. But let me give you a little of the flavor because I think there you can get an idea of how Paul approached this idea of idolatry. Isaiah 44, verse 9, All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Nothing, worthless, empty, void, you see. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? Why would you bother, Isaiah says, spending your energy to create an idol that can't do you any good? You see the logic of the gospel? It's not, don't make those idols because idols are sinful. That's true enough. But here the attack is on a much more profound level. They won't help you, though. They won't do any good. So why spend your time and energy creating an idol, much less worshiping it? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men, 
Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. Could it be that the Spirit of God speaking through Isaiah had just that kind of silversmith's guild meeting in mind when he said, let the artisans come together and take their stand. Go ahead, let them oppose the gospel, if they will. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. And then in a very sarcastic and humorous passage, Isaiah goes on to show how these idolaters work. They're working in wood, so they carve their idol, and then they sweep up the shavings and the sawdust, and they make a little fire, and they cook their bread over that, and they have their lunch, and then they go back and they fall down before the same chunk of wood and say, my God, deliver me. And Isaiah looks at that and he says, this is craziness. Why would anybody do that? They must be out of their minds. Well, a pagan who hears the gospel and realizes that all those things that he once gloried in and trusted in and relied upon are now empty and vain and worthless, he's not going to spend any time, and this is the important point, any money on promoting that kind of idolatry anymore. So Paul preached a gospel that laid the axe to the very root of the silversmith's business, at least insofar as it relied upon the silver idols of Artemis. And so he hurt trade and he hurt the religion. It's interesting that uh, Demetrius does get around to the religious point eventually in verse 27, having raised this concern over the income that is being lost. And he goes on to say, there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. It's like Demetrius, after hammering on the economic argument, reminds himself that uh, that sounds a little crass. Let's get back to the real issue. This is a religious issue, right? Freedom of religion. We want to worship Artemis. And if the gospel continues to change people's lives, what will happen to the glory of our great goddess? But you wonder to Demetrius and to his cohorts, what was really the rub? Was it the glory that Artemis might lose or the income that the silversmiths might lose by the business fall off? Now reflecting on that incident or that portion of Luke's account, isn't it striking how often many of us, maybe all of us, who have had confrontations with the world on different issues find out that it really stems from some very base and selfish motives parading as high principle. Think about the different kinds of clashes that many of us are engaged in just now. Think about the conflict between private Christian school education or homeschool education and public education. So often the high principle of whether or not the government ought to provide a quality education for every child in the world boils down to the fact that the school board is fearful that if you homeschool your children or put your children in a Christian school, they're going to lose a daily financial allowance for their school. And that's what it comes down to. One of our churches in the Presbytery recently had some negotiations with a public school over the rental of a property. And after all the rhetoric and all the talk, it finally came out. You might take some of our students away. And that might mean $500 a year to us or some figure like that. Ah, so that's where all the principles come eventually. And yet I think because we are people of principle, or ought to be, try to be, 
we tend to give the benefit of the doubt to everybody else's principle. And we think, you know, if we are acting out of a deep concern for the biblical principle of the Word of God, then certainly our enemy is also motivated by high principle. And yet how often it turns out just to be the opposite. It is a financial issue often at bottom. In the conflict with the pro-abortionist forces that make money by the millions and billions year after year, profiting from the death of the unborn. Oh, you can talk about pro-choice, you can talk about the right to privacy and all of those kinds of things, but what it boils down to in the last analysis is what Harold O.J. Brown said several years ago. He said, if you have a piece of property, short of finding oil on that property, the most profitable return on a piece of property in this day and age is to open abortion clinic on that land. That's what it comes down to. It is profitable to kill unborn children. Profitable for those who do the murder. Profitable those, for those who consent to the murder. I mean, it sounds uh, grand, doesn't it? when some woman or her husband or her boyfriend says, well, you know, we just can't afford another child. Oh, isn't that too bad? But isn't that ultimately greed? I cannot sustain my lifestyle the way I want it to be if I have to feed another mouth. So better cut them in pieces and suck them out of the womb and pay somebody to do it. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Luke helps us see that in the way he tells this story. It isn't a conflict of high principle, or at least not of high principle alone. At bottom, it is a very selfish human community at war with Jesus Christ because Jesus is bad for business. And from Luke's day, Paul's day, right down to the present day, things haven't changed all that much. Hearing Luke's account of Demetrius' little speech is kind of like reading your enemy's mail. I've told a story before at Bayview, uh, and the point of this is not to bash Democrats. If you're a Democrat, that's all right. But uh, one time, no, I'm, we can talk about that later. One time, though, I changed residences, and I couldn't remember whether I, uh, re whether I was registered to vote. And so I thought, well, if I was registered to vote, I was registered as a Republican, so I'll register again as a Democrat just to make sure that I'm on the books someplace. Well, registering as a Democrat got me on a whole lot of real interesting mailing lists. And lo and behold, one day, a letter from the National Organization of Women came to me, and uh, I got a chance to read the enemy's mail. And it was an astonishing letter. The one who wrote this letter was really upset about these radical evangelical Christians and the successful efforts that they were launching against the pro-abortion movement. And it went on for three pages telling about this horrible terror, which was us. Yeah, they were nervous. They were panicky. And, of course, the bottom line was, if you want us to fight these radical Christians, for you, you better, what? Send money, right, send money. Well, there's Demetrius for you in the National Organization of Women using the same methodology to fight against our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he promises and what he stands for. You and I need to be able to see through not only the folly of idolatry. I think we're pretty good at that. You know, we know what's wrong with pagan religions, and many of us can fairly effectively launch an apologetic against that. 
But I wonder how often when we are confronting people on these issues, whether it's privately in door-to-door evangelism or maybe some of you in sidewalk counseling or other things, can see through the principled overlay of a presentation argument to the real heart of the matter. I'm thinking of something like Jesus did when he talked to the woman at the well who wanted to debate theology and worship. Where should we worship, on this mountain or that mountain? And Jesus cut right through all the baloney and said, Go get your husband for me. She said, I don't want to talk about my husband. I want to talk about where we worship. He says, well, that's fine, but I want to talk to your husband. And he got to the heart of the matter. So often when we're confronting the world over issues of concern to our Savior, we need to be able to see through things, as Luke helps us see through the silversmith's problem. It wasn't a freedom of religion issue. It was an economic fight. And we need to be able to challenge the enemies on the level where they are really functioning. I sometimes muse about just how we might get through to some folks if we don't let them pick the place where we will fight the fight. But because of biblical insight and wisdom given from the Spirit of God, we're able to find that soft underbelly for the argument where we really will begin to touch people where they live. Well, we can't dwell on that, but I... I really, I'm impressed by what Luke tells us as he sort of pulls back the screen a little bit and we can see what's really going in behind the closed doors of that silversmith's union meeting. Well, pretty soon the trouble spreads to the mob. Like any good demonstration, they have to start with a good slogan, something that will fit on a placard to be carried in a demonstration. And in verse 28, that's what they do. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! As they began that chant and as they began that demonstration, pretty soon the crowd begins to grow. The mob is getting agitated. And before long, the whole whole city is stirred up, Luke tells us. So much so that they go down to the amphitheater in Ephesus, which is still there, holds about 25,000 people. But this was a standing room only crowd, so maybe another 30% bigger than that. Carrying on, bedlam. Screaming out, Artemis of the Ephesians, down with Paul, down with the gospel, down with Jesus. And the whole city was carried away by that. Two of Paul's companions were seized and drugged into the amphitheater. There's no uh, knowing what was going to happen there. The commotion was so great that no one was sure just what would happen. Would they be stoned? Would they be torn to pieces? Would they be trampled to death? Would they be tried, convicted, and executed? Paul, when he heard about the problem, wanted to go down himself, as we read in verse 30. He wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him go. What? You in the middle of that Super Bowl mob? Forget it. You're staying home. And some of Paul's influential friends among the Asiarchs sent a message to him, begging him not to venture into the theater. It was a volatile situation because this mob had been whipped into a frenzy. The kind of mob that can watch people guillotined one after another after another after another, day after day, month after month, year after year, in a reign of terror, and think nothing of it. A mob that can consent to the slaughter of millions of its own population because it's good for the national interests. See, things were going crazy in Ephesus. A Jewish representative named Alexander was pushed forward to kind of uh, at least get the, the Romans to realize that the Jews weren't involved in this problem. You know, the Jews, they didn't worship Artemis either, but they had a special exemption from the Roman government not to do that. 
Well, now there was a danger that in all of this frenzy over Artemis, the Jews might get clobbered as well as the Christians. So the Jews wanted to say, wait a minute, guys, it's not us, it's them. It's Paul, it's the Christians, it's the gospel, go after them. But the crowd wouldn't even listen to him. They shouted him down into silence as he tried to quiet the crowd. And they went on berserk for two hours. Now, I'm tired from the last five minutes of this sermon. But can you imagine yelling, Artemis of the Ephesians, Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours? But so incensed, so furious they were. But then, the Spirit of God speaking through Luke tells us this little detail that just sort of blows this big bubble in an explosive deflation. Because Luke tells us, in verse 32, most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Yelling and screaming for blood for two hours, and most of the people didn't even know why they were there. How like human nature. How easily we are swept along on a wave of enthusiasm or a wave of hatred, and yet when it's time for the 11 o'clock news and the guy comes out to the man on the street and says, Are you upset about this? Oh, yes, I'm very upset. I'm very, 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 very upset. I just don't know what we're going to do about this problem. And then he says, Well, what is the problem? Well, uh, um, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm upset about it, though, aren't you? We ought to do something about it. Yes, but what's the problem? Well, it's the Christians. It's the Christians doing the problem. Yes, but what have they done wrong? Well, well, I don't know. I saw all the people, and they were yelling, screaming, carrying on, and I thought, hey, why not? It's a demonstration. Let's do it. You see, all of this... Fury is over nothing to the great bulk of the people that are there. They didn't even know why they were there. They were just carrying on. How easily men like you and I are manipulated. How easily we can be whipped into a frenzy and then sent off to do horrible destruction without really even knowing what we're doing. Inflamed by fear, we can act as a mob. Inflamed by prejudice, we can act as a mob. And we can become, as a mob, an awesome weapon in the short run. We can be terrifying in a short run. I don't know if you uh, lived through any of the riots in the 60s. Most of you who are my age or older saw them on television. I remember Joseph Wambaugh's first novel, The New Centurions, climaxed during the Watts riots in 1964. And all through that book, he had talked about the police who were the officers of order restoring order in little problems. You know, a liquor store is robbed, a man is mugged on the street, or a bank is robbed. The society was orderly and the police were the new centurions to restore order in these little spot problems. But then came the Watts riots, where the whole culture was in disorder, and they were the little islands of order trying to restore things, and they knew that they were not equal to the task. And it was a chilling piece of literature as it came to that climax. Mobs are horrifying, terrifying weapons in the short run. But because they have no heart, because they have no real understanding and no real conviction, then they can't sustain the fight for very long. 
about two hours of yelling, Artemis of the Ephesians, Artemis of the Ephesians, and you're ready to sit down and have a rest. If there's no principle, if there's no conviction, if there's no commitment. And our enemies, the enemies of the cross, can be whipped into a horrible frenzy for all kinds of reasons, true and false, that are alleged against the church. It is not impossible for our churches be, to be stormed by mobs of people, given the right instances, the right circumstances, even in our day and age. And in the third world, you and I know well that for our brothers and sisters it happens frequently with devastating consequences in the short run. But you see, that's the key thing. The enemies of God cannot sustain their attack against the kingdom of God because ultimately there is no understanding. It's the fool that says there is no God. And he can't put it together long enough to sustain it with sufficient conviction to outlast the onslaught of the gospel that does move by conviction with power and with patience until it's subdued. Today in America are being told that we've got to be very, very concerned about the religious right. That's what we're called. You know, and, and because Christians who are evangelicals and reformed are making statements about social issues or about political issues, which you may or may not agree with, that becomes the issue. We don't want to argue religion with them because we're committed, says the liberal, to freedom of religion. So let's talk about something that people will get steamed up over. These Christians want to pass laws that are going to get right into your bedroom. Does that upset you? Well, of course it does, of course it does. What can we do about it? Send money. Send money. Join the demonstration. Have a sign. Write your congressman. Do something about it. But when you get them one-on-one -on -one and you begin to talk to them about what Christ means and what the Word of God teaches and how the Word of God changes life, oftentimes they'll scratch their head and say, well, I didn't understand that. That really doesn't sound all that bad to me. C.S. Lewis talks about his witnessing that he did to RAF pilots during the Second World War, and he said he was astonished to realize how many people that he talked to really didn't have an objection against the gospel. They just had never heard it honestly presented before. But Christians kept back from them because they assumed these guys are hard cases. These are military people. They're not going to listen to the gospel, and if they do, they're going to tear my head off. How often have you been intimidated by the ferocity of the mob or even of the individual unbeliever and failed to tell him truthfully and honestly what the gospel says and what it doesn't say and see him or her say after all is said and done, gee, I, I didn't realize that that's what it was and be won by the power of the Spirit of God drawing them. Well, patience, because of the nature of God and his Deliverance always gives the victory to God's faithful servants. Satan, as Luther said, has a rage which we can endure. You know, sometimes it comes right down to saying, by God's grace, I'm going to be here long after my enemies are dead. Now, you may not be physically there, but the gospel will be there after every enemy has fallen silent. And because the gospel is such a life-transforming, profound message, it is always going to win in the long run, and the people of God have to have the patience to weather the storm and to commit themselves to faithfulness, no matter how much raging goes on and no matter how much bloodshed takes place in the short run by the enemies of God. Jesus is going to outlast his enemies, 
and as his people, we are going to outlast them as well. Well, let me close by just bringing to your attention how God brings the immediate relief to his servants from a very unusual quarter. It's a politically fearful bureaucrat that finally breaks through to these people and gets things quieted down so that Paul and the rest can go on about their business. Verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? That's the meteor. Therefore, since these facts are unde uh, undeniable, and you ought to be quiet and not to say anything rash, you have brought these men here, though they are neither, have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. See, he, he understood that there was no real crime that had taken place, not even sacrilege. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a, a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it may be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it, says the town clerk. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The city clerk was the chief executive officer for Ephesus, and he was the one that had the responsibility of being the liaison to the Roman imperial government that also had its headquarters for the province in Ephesus. And he understood that Rome didn't like uproars in the provinces for any reason. They liked the Pax Romana. That's why they invented it, I guess. You know. The Roman peace. And they weren't all that concerned about who it was that got the riot started, but they tended to suppress riotous action severely and make the lesson stick. You may have read before about some of the riots that were inspired by Jewish zealots in Jerusalem. And soldiers from Rome came in and crucified hundreds and thousands of rioting mobsters who may, like these men, not know why they were there. They just saw the signs, they saw the mob, they said, let's go, demonstrate. And Rome hung them on a cross by the thousands to remind people that Rome likes peace and order and isn't happy with riots. Well, with that kind of a consciousness, you see, the town clerk who's got to go talk to the Roman governor says, we're in danger of being guilty of riotous behavior, and we won't have any reason to give for why this has gone on today. So out of that fear, he calls upon the Ephesians to quiet down and to go home. Now, after two hours or more of that kind of hoopla, you can imagine that the crowd was happy for someone to give them some respectable reason to shut up and go home. You know, you don't want to just slink off back to your home neighborhood quietly. And you have to do it as a matter of principle. So if somebody comes and gives you a good reason why you can slink off back to your own neighborhood, much better. So they were happy to have some kind of reason given for why they ought to leave. And this city councilman, this uh, city clerk, gives them a very noble kind of an appeal. And I don't know, I don't want to be accused of reading into Luke's account here, but this speech has a little bit of a ring of cynicism to me as he makes this appeal to the Ephesians and he says, everybody in their right mind knows that Artemis is the real God. Nobody denies that she fell from heaven in her image. Nobody would contradict, nobody with any brains, nobody who's been to college, nobody with any sense would deny that Artemis is the one that ought to be worshipped. 
So let's not get excited about it. We don't have to defend Artemis. Artemis can take care of herself. We can all go home and have lunch and relax. And the crowd says, yeah, Artemis is a big girl. She don't look like much, but she can take care of herself. I guess we can go home. We don't have to keep this commotion up. We're not compromising our principle to go home now, so we'll go home. And away they went, quieted and back to their own homes. But Luke wants to make the point for the readers of the book of Acts, because he does have an apologetic concern here, that out of the mouths of the authorities that were on the scene, the testimony was, these men have not done anything wrong. By the preaching of the gospel, they have not robbed temples, says the clerk. By the preaching of the gospel, they have not blasphemed our goddess. Because again, see, the gospel was operating on a much more profound, a much more subtle, a much more long-term transformational level. And if Rome came down and accused them of rioting, says the clerk, we have no reason for what we've done today. See, the clerk simply gave voice to what was in the heart of the mass of those people. They didn't know why they were there. And the clerk says, we don't have any good reason to be here. And Luke writes it down so that the Roman world that reads the book of Acts will realize that in the preaching of the gospel there is no superficial threat to the culture. And that's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we collide with our culture, there are going to be certain issues that we must speak specifically and clearly to. But if we are doing our work as the pe people of God, and if we are doing our work as the preachers of the gospel, we are doing something that on a much more profound and long-term basis is going to turn our world upside down as it did the first century world of the Roman Empire. So Luke wants to defend the preachers of the gospel from attacks that they are being superficially critical of the Roman society or even of Roman religion. It isn't that kind of surface criticism, but a profound transformation that the gospel brings. And you need to keep that in mind as the people of God, as part of his church, as you collide with the pagan culture, whether it's one-on-one -on -one with your neighbor, whether you're discussing very personal issues or family issues, or whether it's those of you who might be on a picket line in front of an abortion clinic or doing sidewalk counseling, or those of you who are involved in teaching or administrating Christian schools or home schools, where you come into colliding confrontation with the pagan world, you need to realize that what you are about is not just to change the surface of the society and dress it up and make it look a little bit better, but to turn it upside down for Jesus Christ. And that's a long-term fight. We may not live to see all of the results, but the power of Christ is with us as it was with Paul and those who preached in Ephesus and in the regions surrounding it. And the victory of Jesus Christ is just as sure today as it was then when Paul carried on his ministry. So like Paul and Luke, you also have to be patient and not give away the heart of that confidence that we have in the power of Jesus Christ to change the lives of men and their culture and their world and their institutions. And we will be here praising the Lord Jesus Christ, singing that new song long after the last voice of opposition to Calvary and to our risen Lord has been silenced forever. That is our hope. That is our confidence. That is our boldness.
serving the Lord Jesus Christ together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chapter, for its vividness, its truth, and its encouragement. We thank you, O Lord, that even that riotous mob did not make Paul run fearfully away, or even the men who were grabbed and hauled into the middle of the arena were not afraid ultimately, because they knew that the battle belongs not to the strong or to the multitude, but to the faithful, because Jesus Christ is faithful. Lord, we have many areas of contention with the world around us. Some of them are very narrow, clearly focused, and explicit issues. Others are much more general and undefined and much more profound. But Lord, in all of them, we need you to give us grace to be fearless and bold, committed to the gospel in the fullness of its message, a message that will change men and women and their lives and their families, as well as their culture and their institutions. And Lord, whether we see the results coming quickly or, as is more likely, slowly over the emerging years, we pray that we will not lose heart, that we will not throw away our confidence by grabbing for some other gospel or some other method that promises some kind of quick change. But may we patiently and faithfully sow the seed and gather in the harvest as you give us grace to do that until this world is turned upside down for Jesus Christ, even as the first century world was by those 12 men who went out from Jerusalem preaching the gospel. Oh God, we thank you that the battle belongs to the Lord Jesus and that he is faithful and true and that he will be with us even to the end of the age when every voice of opposition will be silent and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's respond to this word from God by singing once again before we close.